Himalaya. You're listening to HTDS Presents Game Changers, Precedent-Setting Presidential Elections, a Himalaya Learning Audio Course. To access the rest of the course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com forward slash historical and enter promo code historical at checkout for your first 14 days free. It's December 3rd, 1770, in the courthouse on Queen Street in Boston. Despite the cold outside, the packed courtroom is full of energy and tension that one reporter calls electric. Eight British soldiers are on trial for their part in the Boston Massacre last March. You know, when a group of menacing redcoats fired into a crowd of innocent lads throwing mere snowballs. Or maybe it was when a Bostonian mob viciously attacked the king's soldiers, forcing them to fire in self-defense. It's hard to say when, for many, emotions outweigh the facts. Colonists who believe the first version want revenge, but today the soldier's defense lawyer will give his closing arguments on their behalf. The defendants, the jury, and the spectators watch as a five-foot-six man with specks of gray in his hair and a thick midsection stands at the front of the room. John Adams turns his sharp blue eyes on the jury and states, I am for the prisoners at the bar. John gestures to the eight men quietly standing at the railing behind him. He continues with his speech. The Marquise de Picaria once stated, If, by supporting the rights of mankind and of invincible truth, I shall contribute to save from the agonies of death one unfortunate victim of tyranny or of ignorance, equally fatal, his blessings and years of transport will be sufficient consolation to me for the contempt of all mankind. The jury seems to understand John's point. No one should be denied a fair trial, even these soldiers. So John has chosen to take this case, even if it makes him unpopular, because he believes in supporting the rights of mankind. The lawyer from Braintree, Massachusetts, argues that the tragic violence and death of that night back in March can be blamed on two things. The mob and the flawed policy of quartering troops with civilians. John declares, The sun is not about to stand still or go out, not the rivers to dry up because there was a mob in Boston on the 5th of March that attacked a party of soldiers. Soldiers quartered in a populous town will always occasion two mobs where they prevent one. They are wretched conservators of the peace. This argument seems to be part of the foundation of John's views later in life that a strong federal government makes a good conservator of peace. In 1789, John will write, The fate of this government depends absolutely upon raising it above state governments. But in this Boston courtroom today, John's focused on defending his clients, not building the framework of his later political philosophies. The lawyer sticks to the facts of the case. He refutes the overblown accounts of the massacre with careful and accurate descriptions of the events. John tells the jury that one of his clients was knocked to the ground with a club, and when he stood up, another person in the mob knocked him down again. Do you expect that he should behave like a stoic philosopher lost in apathy? John asks the jury. Of course not. John answers his own question. The soldiers acted in self-defense against the aggressive mob. This version of the story is not the narrative popular with Bostonians. But John's cogent arguments draw in the jury. Spectators watch almost holding their breath as the blue-eyed lawyer ends his speech with an unforgettable statement. Facts are stubborn things. And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. 
two hours later, the jury acquits six of the eight soldiers. The remaining two are convicted of manslaughter and branded on their thumbs. John will later call his role in the Boston Massacre trial, one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. Welcome to Game Changers, precedent-setting presidential elections. I'm your professor, Greg Jackson, and I'm joined by my co-host, C.L. Salazar. This is Episode 1, The Election of 1800, A Changing of the Guard, Part 1. All right, so, C.L., Let's go ahead and dive into this thing, huh? Let's do it. All right. So before we get into who's running for office and, you know, the the things that we usually think of when we say nuts and bolts of an election, right? Right. Parties, people, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. We need to introduce America. Yeah. America in 1800 is a very different place than America in 2020. So what have we got? Yeah. So I think one of the first things that we really got to keep in mind is that This whole grand experiment, as it's been thought of, it's brand new. It is. We've got George Washington, who's been president in 1800. We've got John Adams as our sitting, but only second president. So we're still really testing the Constitution. Yeah, exactly right. And something that I think is lost on us very often in the 21st century is that the founding fathers, these guys are not all BFFs. Right. They have different political leanings, and those are really starting to gel, really take shape as George Washington has left office and we've started to figure out what the Constitution does and how it really works when the rubber hits the road. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say gel, I know what you mean. You mean gel in different camps, not gel like coming together. Yes, that is exactly what I mean. (laughs) Um, I mean, basically, the only thing that these guys really agreed on when we think back through the revolution is that King George III was the worst. And that's pretty much where their uh, similarities end. Yeah. And after that point, I mean, they're ready to draw political blood. Yes. So that kind of was stayed, though, when the, I mean, well, it wasn't stayed entirely. The Constitution itself, that was in some ways almost a a literal blood battle. There were there were fist fights at the uh, conventions for ratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there were a lot of people who we would call dyed in the wool patriots like like a Patrick Henry. Yeah. Who very much disagreed with the Constitution and fought against it. Yes. And. I mean, this gets kind of to the roots in some ways of even American federalism and what the balance of power between the states once were. And the fact that we still have federalism today, that there was a fear among many of the founders of power from basically both sides of the spectrum. They, they feared tyranny from above. They feared a king. That's what they were running away from. Right. And that's where the Constitution kind of gets rid of that. And you've got the balance of powers between Congress and the president. Exactly. They also feared basically the rabble beneath. Yeah, the tyranny of the masses and hence the electoral college and that we've got, you know, states are then electing senators, not the people electing senators. And so so these are all things that we've got to, you know, we're going to have to unravel. There are amendments that have yet to come, amendments that have come because of these elections. So these are all precedents that we will get into. But as we are venturing into 1800 America, This is only the second contested presidential election, really, Mm -hmm. in American history. Right, because for the first two presidential elections, you have beloved, unifying, popular George Washington. Exactly. Who steps down after two terms and lets everybody else fight it out. Well, (laughs) I guess you could say that 
the founding uh, generation, they just agreed on George's. So I'll dial back my last statement, right? They all agreed that George III was the worst and that George Washington was pretty awesome. Yeah. By the end of the Revolutionary War, they all believed that George Washington was yes, pretty awesome. Yes. But during the war, was, anyway, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, we'll take that up to where we're at. Yeah. So and of course, uh, poor George, he had uh, plenty of tough goes as president. I mean, the Constitution itself is very vague. And uh, he, every decision he makes becomes precedent. Yes. But now he's out. John Adams has been president for one whopping term. And it was a real throwdown as to who was going to be president within the Electoral College. So now here we are in 1800 and he's going up for a second term and, and it's not working. Yeah. No, Thomas Jefferson decides to give him a run for his money. Yes, he does. OK, so let's now that we've kind of talked through that America has basically just got this constitution. There was fear of of tyranny from above. There's fear of the rabble from beneath. Hence the uh, the setup of this very robust but elite republic mm-hmm. that is making sure the power doesn't get centralized too much in Washington. Well, there's, as we finally get to Washington, it wasn't even Washington initially, but sure. <laughs> we are in. We're, we're now in, in Washington. Now we're in Washington. It exists. <laughs> yes. John Adams is the first president to sit in a very, very freshly completed White House. Sure. So, John Adams is uh, coming from the faction, the political party, that's gelling, to use your word from earlier, uh, known as the Federalists. And the Federalists prefer a strong central government, which is what we heard in the opening story, right? That John believes that a strong central government is the greatest asset to a peaceful nation. Right. And uh, one of his, eh, let's call frenemies, really, would be Alexander Hamilton. Sure. So they are the leaders of the the Federalist Party, but Mm -hmm. they can't even get along. They're busy bickering and fighting. (laughs) Jeez, Abigail Adams has the worst things to say about him in in her letters. Yeah, she she doesn't like Alexander. Not in the least. She thinks he is an immoral, immoral, terrible human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, the the Adamses, if you ever read through their letters, they they do kind of like to judge people. They do. And and they're very witty while they do it. Oh, brilliantly witty. Yeah, it's. Actually, pretty great reading. Yeah. Yeah, it, it gives a good chuckle. Uh, so we've got a riff within this political faction that really saw through the ratification of the Constitution, mm-hmm. we might say. But then on the other side of the political spectrum, you've got Thomas Jefferson sitting with the Democratic Republicans. That's right. The two major parties today. <laughs> <laughs> Thrown into one party that has nothing to do with the two major parties of today. <laughs> exactly. So this is always a lot of fun. Let's make sure we really are clear in defining these terms here. So the Democratic Republicans, they're called oh, they are called so many different things. And it's all confusing to 21st century Americans. Yes. Because first of all, they're Democratic Republicans. So it sounds like you're taking the two modern political parties and just smashing them together. Which is not the case. <laughs> not even close. The ideology does not line up whatsoever. In, in fact, personally, I am not a fan of trying to take the past parties too much. I mean, you can talk about one being more conservative, one being more liberal, but the issues of the day are just so radically different and it, it, yes. it falls apart, for me at least, in, in many different ways. They're often referred to shorthand. As the Republicans. Yeah, sure. So that's not confusing. Not at all. <laughs> now, one of the cleaner shorthands I like is the Jeffersonian Republicans. Right. And that puts the party in the era. And so that way we can track the issues of the day and the ideas of Jefferson and many of the people in the party who agreed with Jefferson. But like the Federalists, there are, you know, there's a spectrum of ideas even within this party. Yeah. 
But I'd say one thing that we should really just drive home is that just like the Federalists, that party is going to totally die within the next few decades. Yes. So will the Democratic Republicans. This yes. is not the predecessor of any of the, the two, either of the two major parties. Right. Right. So, um, CL, you'd mentioned uh, Thomas Jefferson being mm-hmm. there, there at the head. The, uh, the Jeffersonian Republicans, these are going to be your, your smaller, I guess, well, not smaller, but let's just say state power focused party. Right. They are very much interested in uh, checking the power of the federal government in the interest of the power of the state government. And you might say, right, so if we were going to talk about kind of a more conservative party, that would kind of be it in that that's where the fear of King George III first came in. The idea that there was this big central government and the states or the colonies, they rebelled collectively against this monarch over the way. Mm -hmm. And so people like Patrick Henry Thomas Jefferson. Now he's not as extreme as Patrick, who right was totally against the. Constitution. <laughs> no one is. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Patrick's kind of out there. I mean, what do you expect from a guy who says "Give me liberty or give me death"? It's you know, yeah, yeah. He means Hi- it. <laughs> hyper- yeah, hyperbole to many is what he is very serious about. So, um, <laughs> the point is that the the, the Democratic Republicans use their full name. They fear power from above, I'd say more so than the Federalists do. And that's yes. the tension between these two parties, the, the main tension. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in the election of 1800, as you have candidates running for office, you end up with four candidates because these parties are new. There's not primaries. It's not just one versus the other. So you've got Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, of course. You also have Aaron Burr and Charles Pinckney that are all gunning for the White House. They are. And because we don't have the same level of organization and according to the Electoral College at this point, we haven't had amendments to play with things at all. Mm -hmm. The electors. So today, when someone runs for president, the the people vote, the popular vote within the state, it it correlates. Typically, each state makes decisions on this, but we technically basically vote for electors who are going to cast a faithful vote in line with the party. Yes. At, At least the thinking in the creation of the Electoral college was that electors would be elected because they are just so smart and such brilliant guys. Yeah, they could just interpret the vote of the popular people, of the masses. Well, and I would say be smarter than the masses. Yes. Because it is back to this idea that there are the smart people who should run the republic, mm-hmm. right? Fear, fearing the rabble below, right? So fearing the tyranny above, the rabble below, you need just the smart people. To, in the republic. Yeah, and they'll, they'll choose the president for you. That's right. So that's ex- that's pretty much what, what you're doing. It's, you know, the you would come together and say, ah, we're all going to elect Bob. Bob's super smart. Mm-hmm. We can trust him to pick the president. So you're not, I mean, this is crazy to us today. You're not voting for a candidate for president. You're voting for so-and-so down the street or the guy in town who you all know is a smart and I, I'll keep saying guy because I think it's important to note women are excluded from the, the process at this yeah, point. No women, none at all. So, yeah, that, that is a very deliberate thing. I want to mm-hmm. be clear on that. Yeah. So you're, you're going to elect this smart guy who isn't you're not you're not voting for the president. You're voting for this elector and trusting him to go cast a vote for some other smart guy. Mm-hmm. And, and part of this is also because in this America, news doesn't travel fast. You don't have Twitter. You don't have Facebook. No, even online newspapers. I mean, nothing. Right. I mean, and even the news itself. In these slow printed newspapers, it takes a lot of time for things to travel. You don't have a lot of figures who are like George Washington, who can be famous and well-known across the states. A lot of these heroes that we think of of the American Revolution today 
They're local heroes. Yeah. So you've got somebody who's voting down in North Carolina, and they they don't know the first thing about a candidate up in Massachusetts. Right. I mean, you might think that, you know, John Hancock is a household name and is super popular. And he sure is in New England. In Yes, in Massachusetts and the surrounding area. And that's it. Yeah. Okay. So that's part of why you need electors, because you know, you, you can't wrap your head around who would be a good person to come from all the 13 states now that it's not George Washington. No one else has that rock star name recognition. Sure. And so when the electors cast their ballots in 1800, they cast ballots for Thomas Jefferson. John Adams loses. He's a one-term president. Um, That's and, right. And partly because Alexander Hamilton does not have his back. There's no, infighting within the party. The Federalists can't get it together and, and agree to support one another. It's, uh, it's a rough go. It is. Yeah. It is. So Thomas Jefferson ends up president. And at this point, well, second place uh-huh. <laughs> goes, gets the VP spot. So Thomas Jefferson didn't pick his own vice president. That wasn't in the Constitution. There weren't parties that were running a, a ticket, a platform with, you know, a president and a vice president on it. Yeah. Here's the funky thing is that the Democratic Republicans have both agreed that they want Burr as his vice president. Mm-hmm. And so they have cast their votes and they had so much more discipline than the Federalists who were busy bickering yeah. between their two heads that pretty much everyone lined up. They cast a vote for Tommy J. They cast a vote for Aaron Burr. And they managed to actually get dead even. Yeah, the exact same number of electoral votes to both Thomas and Aaron. They really should have had somebody say like, OK, I'm, I'm going to not cast my vote for Aaron Burr. I'll... Yeah, they didn't think ahead on that one. No. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. It sure is. <laughs> Which is where, you know, they, they find themselves scratching their heads going, huh, looks like the Constitution just set us up for a showdown. Mm hmm. Yeah. So the Constitution says that if there's a tie, it needs to be broken by the House of Representatives. That's right. So this is Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution. This is where we get into some real nitty gritty. But I'm going to save that for Episode 2 because really, it's a whole nother discussion. Mm -hmm. So right now, though, the Federalists are out and we're down to this odd situation where the Democratic Republicans, this one party, they've crushed it in the election. And yet now they're going to have a, a melee within the party Mm -hmm. over which of their candidates is actually going to be the president, which one's going to be the vice president. So we'll leave you on that cliffhanger. But the precedence that that we've set already to this point without even finishing the election is that John Adams has lost and he is stepping down, which is a big deal. He is the commander in chief. If he wanted to, John could surround the White House and soldiers and say, I'm not leaving. Right. I think we can look around the world for the past 200 years and see plenty of examples of presidents, quote unquote, that use that power to become dictators. Amen. Exactly right. So Washington was amazing for just saying, I'm not running again. But this is the first time that someone's lost and said, "Okay, well, I respect the vote. Right. Peacefully step away. I didn't win the election. I'll just be a one term president. And it's one of the things that I respect the most about John Adams. I'll also point out that another important precedent is simply that the Constitution works. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and in some ways that it doesn't work, right? So the Democratic Republicans are sitting here scratching their heads going, oh, crap, what do we just set ourselves up for? But the fact that this process is functioning for the most part and that everyone's going to actually play by the rules because we've got to remember that Patrick Henry, those types, they're still out there. Yeah, there are still plenty of people who are going, I don't know, guys, let's just see if this works. But if it doesn't, maybe we should try something else. But the Constitution proves its, proves its metal in this election. All right. I think that's it for now. So, if 
you're riveted and wanting to know what's going to happen between Jefferson and Burr, join us in episode two. What you just heard was HTDS Presents Game Changers, Precedent-Setting Presidential Elections, a Himalaya Learning audio course. To access the rest of the course and others like it, go to Himalaya.com forward slash historical and enter promo code historical at checkout for your first 14 days free. On the next episode of Game Changers, the election of 1800 part two, we'll hear about Thomas Jefferson's run-in with British troops during the Revolutionary War. Then we'll discuss the political battle that is waged when two candidates tie for the presidency and neither will back down. Game Changers, precedent-setting presidential elections is created and hosted by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar. Researching and writing by Greg Jackson and C.L. Salazar. Production by Airship. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Theme music composed by Greg Jackson. Arrangement and additional composition by Lindsey Graham of Airship. Distribution by Himalaya. 